praise God for this church, for the variety of gifts, for the people that respond to situations quickly and wisely. There's a reason we have a security team at our church to address situations like this. There's a reason why um, it's a blessing to have medical professionals that respond quickly. So between EMTs that are in our church that just responded to medical professionals to um, our security team, thanks to you all for responding. And we're going to entrust uh, Richard to good medical care into the hands of our Lord and Savior. Um, but thank you all for your patience. Um, it's interesting to me, I just don't even know how really to, how else to say this, but um, what I was supposed to be saying right now is, uh, I, was, I have an opening question here, and the question is, when was the last time that you considered your own mortality and eventual death. And um, I didn't plan on having an ambulance on campus when I asked that question. But everything that God does is for a reason, and um, we trust him in the times and seasons and the events around us. And we're going to press in to this question, because that's where Proverbs has left us. Uh, we've spent three months looking through the book of Proverbs together asking these questions of, of what is wisdom in particular situations and circumstances. And here we are at the very last of these sermons, looking at the question of how do I prepare for my eventual death? How do I pursue a life that is life and avoid the path that is death? And so th that's our focus for this morning in August of uh, 2011, many of you remember, I was young, uh, we were still relatively newly married, uh, so we'd been married for three years, I'd been here for about a year and a half as, as a youth and family minister, and in my family, we were faced with this question very suddenly, very dramatically, because in August 2011, we had two twin boys that were we were so hopeful for, so joyous about, that were born early and they both passed within the first three days of their lives. And for the first time in my young life, as a young adult, as a first-time father, I was facing one of those situations that many of you have been a part of, where you're sitting in a hospital or you're sitting in a doctor's office and you're having an end-of-life conversation with a medical professional who's trying to walk you through the realization that the person that is under care right now will pass. And trying to prepare you for it and talk through the, the processes that will come and what, what medical steps need to be taken, those sort of things. And so for the first time in my life as a young adult, here I was faced with this, with this conversation relating to my son who had just been born. And then a year later, 14 months later, we had another conversation with family members in a hospital room with a group of doctors talking about um, my, my wife's brother. And then a month after that, another conversation in a hospital with a group of doctors talking about my wife's aunt. And from 25-year-old, 26-year-old who didn't even think about it, who didn't have to reflect about it, all of a sudden, three times in 14 months, we're in these end-of-life conversations with medical professionals, recognizing life is fragile. 
you will not live forever as you are living right now. Your body is either growing or decaying. It's those two options. And, and you will pass out of this life and you will enter into eternity and there's only two destinations. It's a re realization that we all have to eventually come to, reflect on, and think about. And what's interesting is I've recognized now over the last 10 years, 12 years as a pastor that that, that opportunity has hit me more often than I thought it would. The opportunity to reflect on my own mortality, to reflect on the fact that I will die. Because what happens as a pastor is that there's some really cool moments where you get to live life in connection with other people in relationship and in community. And so you get to celebrate life and you get to grieve death with loved ones at a whole different level because as a pastor you get this this opportunity sometimes to be involved in the beginning of families in a really unique way because there's three people standing up in front and there's all these bridesmaids and groomsmen and they're important too, but there's one person that's standing with the bride and groom and so often I've had the pleasure, the opportunity to be there, to be the guy that's helping this bride and groom come together and form a family. It's rich and it's beautiful. And just, just last week, I was one of the first people to get a text message from a guy that said, my wife's going into labor, pray for us. And I was one of the first people to get on that short list to get one of the first pictures of the newborn life and it's so beautiful. But the other thing that happens is that sometimes as you're a minister walking through life with people, you're one of those first calls that says, it looks like this is not going to be an improvement, but actually my loved one is deteriorating and will eventually pass. And see, that's maybe my life is an extreme in that because I get to walk with people through that. But what I want you to think about, first of all, is that everyone in the Christian community should and has the opportunity to have a little bit of that. Like we're, we're an extended family that gets to love and walk with each other through the highs. Marriages, babies being born, uh, kids coming to Christ, baptism, graduations, all those beautiful milestones. But we're also a loving family that clings to each other and helps each other walk through the more challenging times of those, those bad diagnoses, of, of the treatment that, that just didn't work, of the eventual passing of a loved one. In 2011, my response to losing two twin boys was, I've got to figure out what heaven's all about. I'd been a Christian since I was young. I, I, I had lived a life that I think honored Christ as, as much as any sinner redeemed by grace could. I was convicted of my sin. I, I wanted to follow Christ and honor Christ. But did I reflect on heaven? Absolutely not. I was 25. I was an idiot. Like I was a Christian, but I was still an idiot. And I was still kind of selfish and thinking that I was young and invincible and everything bright and, and wonderful was in front of me. And then all of a sudden, it's my interest turned to heaven above all else. And so maybe that's some of you that can relate to that. Maybe some of you can relate in that I never think about heaven. I never think about my death because I'm young and everything in life is in front of me. Or maybe you're in that stage now where you're like, man, I'm, 
I'm really questioning, I'm really considering. And life has this heaviness, this heavy tone to it because of the loss I've already experienced or the loss I'm preparing to experience. At the end of the day, our goal for this morning is for every one of us to agree life is fragile. We are on our way to eternity, that our physical bodies will die. And we will then enter into eternity going one of two places. And the path we lead in this life results in the ramifications of of eternity and what our eternal state is. And that is the last message that I'm bringing to you from the great sage of the book of Proverbs who's guiding you to wisdom. That he says it like this. There's a path that leads to life. And there's a path that leads to death. And the path that leads to death has eternal ramifications. But the great news is the path that leads to life does too. So we're going to unpack it really simply. We're going to look at what Proverbs says about the path that leads to death. And then we're going to look at what Proverbs says about the path that leads to life. Proverbs 10, verse 2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit but righteousness delivers from death. And verse 16, the wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. 14.12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Proverbs 16.25 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I don't think that's actually right. I think, oh no, it is right. Oh, that's right. See, now I'm confusing myself in my own notes. That verse appears twice, and I put it in there twice to make the point that it appears twice, and I forgot to make that point. (laughs) When God says something twice exactly the same way, he wants you to hear it. 1412, 1625, exactly the same. Proverbs 19, 16. Whoever, and now it's more memorable because I tricked myself with that. Now you'll remember that. Proverbs 19, 16. Whoever keeps the commandments keeps his life. He who despises his ways will die. What do we learn from Proverbs about the path that leads to life? Well, here are the things that lead to death. Number one, according to to 10, 2, and 16, we have something that leads to death, and it's the treasures gained by wickedness. They do not profit, in verse 2 of Proverbs 10, and the gain of the wicked is sin, in Proverbs 10, 16. Those are the opposite of the path to life. And so number one, what leads to death is treasures gained by wickedness. Now just a couple weeks ago we were talking about money and we got all uncomfortable talking about money two weeks ago, but we're gonna have to go there again today. Because what we said about money two weeks ago is that money reveals so much of our heart. Money reveals our worship. Money reveals our God. And Jesus says you can't serve me and money. You can't serve God and, and financial wealth. And that's the problem with money. It's not because it's, it's passive. It's because money captures you. It enraptures you. It entices you. And so what, what Proverbs is saying to us here, greed leads to death. But it's not just as simple as greed. See, you know, we talked in Proverbs before about what is wickedness and what is wicked gain and, and those sort of things. And what he's talking about sometimes when he's talking about wicked gain is he's talking about unjust wealth. 
wealth that is received by an individual because they, they cheated, because they scammed, because they had uh, inappropriate ways. And so what they were selling was, was a, the wrong amount, and they were kind of cheating the system by having a, a, um, a twisted scale that would, that would steal from people. And dishonest gains, obviously, that's wickedness. That's the path to death. But it, it's actually deeper than that. The gain of the wicked or treasures gained by wickedness can also just be money, riches, wealth that is gained with the wrong God in mind. Because that's the challenge of money, is that when we do it for the wrong reasons, it leads to death. When we do it with a, with a mindset on, uh, well, let's, well, let's ask the question this way, what are you working for? Are you working so that you can honor God by providing for your family, by using your resources to honor him and please him and build his kingdom? Or are you working so that you can live in comfort, so that you can live in security, so that you can have more opportunities, so that you can have better stuff, a more comfortable home? The reason for your hard work reveals who is at the center of your life and heart. And that reveals who your God is. And so there are people that work hard that make a lot of money because wealth isn't necessarily a sin. But there are people that work hard and make a lot of money out of the desire to honor God with it and to live the path of life and to build God's kingdom and be generous and provide for family. And that's a beautiful thing. And sometimes we can't discern the heart of that person. But there's a person that from outwardly could look exactly the same, but they're not doing it to build God's kingdom. They're doing it for their own pleasure, for their own protection, for their own security. Even the trick, the trick of saying wealth provides security has, has a wicked root, has a sinful root. Because what does scripture say about our security and our safety? It, it's not in chariots and horses as Miss Myra prayed. And it's not in our bank accounts, in our 401ks, in our investments. Our only hope for security, for protection, comes from God himself. And so that is wicked gain too. When you don't functionally trust God to keep you secure, but you trust your wealth to keep you secure, secure and protected. So there's lots of different ways to unpack this treasures gained by wickedness. But ultimately, we need to realize that that is the path towards death, towards not being connected to God. Number two, the way that seems right to man. So oftentimes, our, um, our entertainment, our movies, our, our music, our books are so focused on self-actualization and kind of self-idolatry and follow your heart, do what seems right to you, do what feels right to you. And the scary part about that is God has something directly to say to that ideology. That following your heart is the worst thing that you can do. Because God says the heart is, is deceitful. The heart is wicked. And God says there's a way that seems right to a man that leads to destruction. And so the path of life is not do what feels right is not do what you think is right. It is not work hard to please yourself and make sure you're comfortable and you're 
self-actualized and you're the best version of yourself as if you are the center. You can't be money-centered, that's point one, and you can't be self-centered, that's point two. God-centered, that's the path towards life. We live in an age in which the popular um, antidote to the problems we face in society is we just need to let people be themselves. We need to let people follow their hearts, let people do what they feel is right. But while that is the popular sentiment of the age, we have this incredible rise of loneliness, of anxiety, of, of depression. And so is that really the antidote? To tell people to find your truth in yourself, find your truth in your, in your own heart, in your own way of thinking, because it doesn't seem to be addressing the ills of society right now. Because there's a way that seems right to a fallen human being that leads nowhere but destruction. And every single one of us has to wrestle with that. Number three, the way to stay on the path towards death. And guys, I promise, we're starting with the bad news. We'll get to some good news. 1916, whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life, but he who despises his ways will die. I was listening to an interview this week, and the, the person was talking about how he often hears people say things like, you know, the problem with the church or the problem with Christians is that our morality hasn't kept up with society. And so we still believe these things that society used to believe, but Christians really need to update their ethics, update their beliefs, because we're regressive now in the eyes of the culture. But the problem with that is that is is that our morality is not developed within a culture. Our morality is not developed within a society. Our morality is outside of society, outside of culture, from the Word of God. And so to negate the Christian ethic of sexuality, of right and wrong, of, of righteousness and wickedness, to negate what, what Christians believe in ethics and morality is to specifically follow 1916 in despising God's ways. He who despises God's ways will die. And there it is. There's the path. I don't know how many times over the last three months I have been right here, stepped away from the podium, and said, it's, been, it's like this, guys. There's a path, and there's a path. How many times? Anybody counted? I have no idea. I do that all the time through Proverbs. But that's literally the book of Proverbs. There's two paths. Pick one. We know really clearly what the path of death looks like. And it's selfishness and wickedness, and it's either man-centered or God-centered or culturally relevant or, or whatever it is. Any of those three points and how you want to apply those scriptures, the way that feels right, the way that feels safe financially, that is a way that leads us to destruction. But God has a better way. And actually, I'm going to take a time out at this point, and I'm going to move off the podium, and I'm going to let somebody else speak to this issue in a video, because I've told you several times, um, our longest running prayer request as a church until a month or so ago was for seven years we prayed for Ken Elliott, who was living in captivity somewhere in West Africa. We know that Ken was a friend, a dear family friend of a couple within our church, John and Liz Joyce. 
And they met in Jibo in West Africa as missionaries together. Ken and Jocelyn as medical missionaries. Um, John and Liz as missionaries to West Africa sent from this church to minister to a specific people group. And seven years ago, 2016, Ken was taken into captivity by radical Muslim Islam, or radical jihadists. And then we didn't hear anything. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. Actually, Ken and his wife were both abducted and Jocelyn was freed after a couple weeks. And we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And this summer, Ken was released. So if we talk about eternity, life and death, I'm going to let somebody that knows more than I do, that's looked death in the face at a degree I haven't, talk to you about it. So I'm going to show this interview. It's about five minutes long. It's Ken and Jocelyn sharing what they learned during his captivity. So Ken, you remained in captivity for seven years. You had water and bread to survive on. You lived under a tarpaulin most of the time, and you moved from location to location. You didn't even know if your wife had survived, if she was alive. And so over these seven years, can you share with us how has God sustained you? Very well. I, I, I was convinced that God had a purpose in what was happening and uh, I had the example of Job and we desired, we had right from the beginning desired that the Lord would be glorified in our work and um, yes the Bible was central though I didn't have one um, because uh, I wasn't permitted but I had previously, thankfully, memorized a number of uh, psalms and patches of uh, John's Gospel and various odds and ends. And these were a great help because I was able to meditate on these and pray for myself and for my captors. But <clears throat> uh, I also experienced a number of physical challenges. Um, it wasn't the best place to be healthy. And the worst, I think, was experiencing scurvy, a lack of vitamin C. Um, I, I've only seen one case of vitamin C in my medical career, and that was me. Um, but it was to a degree where I was unable to walk, I couldn't crawl, and that was difficult in the end. And. Um, uh, Nevertheless, the, the Lord was gracious and um, eventually my captors found some vitamin C for me, um, which turned the tide right around because I, I, I thought I was finished. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I believe that many people were praying for us um, and uh, from experience I was confident that God answers prayer. It's since my release that I've, I've heard of just how many people have been praying, multitudes of people unknown to us who uh, um, have contacted us since that time, since I came home, um, which demonstrates that we are just one big global family. 
So I know the reason you're both standing here is because you want to proclaim God's faithfulness to you and you want him to be glorified. So my final question to you both is, over the years, what have you learned about God's character, about yourselves, and what it means to take up your cross and follow him? This is a hard question to answer, but I have learnt, I have learnt greater assurance in the goodness of the Lord and in the comfort of the promises he gives me in the Bible, such as his promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. We do not always know his will, and indeed, in waiting for Ken, I did not know if I would see him again in this life, but I was confident that the Lord knew and his will would be for good. The Lord would work out his purposes for us. I took great comfort in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we wake or sleep, we might live with him. Ken was living with Christ, as was I, though we were apart. And should we die, we would continue to live with him. This is the assured hope of anyone who puts their trust in Christ. I was also challenged by Bible verses that speak about waiting on the Lord and being thankful in all circumstances. Yeah, well, I agree with all that. And uh, for me, uh, also, despite the unfavorable conditions, I knew God was in charge. Uh, I was sure of that. Um, and I was trusting him and just renewing my trust in him day by day. <clears throat> Initially, I had prayed for release for by a particular time. The first time was for our wedding anniversary, but it, I, missed, um, I missed eight wedding anniversaries, I'm afraid, in a row. <laughs> but uh, the Lord, I believe, has purposes beyond our understanding, and I learned to wait. Uh, my experience of God's faithfulness in the hospital work had been proven time and time again, and he hasn't stopped proving his faithfulness and graciousness and love, despite our shortcomings. He hasn't stopped proving his faithfulness and graciousness and love despite our shortcomings. Um, what a great way to sum up the message of hope that gives you confidence in seven years of captivity. I wanted you to see just a couple parts of the video that I love. I've, I've probably watched it um, ten times over the last couple weeks. Um, and I'm sending you the full version. You'll see it in your email tomorrow morning about 15 minutes long, the full version. There's a little bit more background in there. Um, but she asks Ken, how did God sustain you? And he says, very well. <laughs> and then people kind of chuckle and laugh because it's like, how else? How do you spell it out? There are some things that are just hard to explain in the presence of God and how God brings peace and presence to people. 
one thing I wanted you to see. The other thing is he's talking about being the first patient in his medical career to suffer with scurvy. And he says, I really thought I was a, go a goner. And, or he said, I thought I was finished. And he laughs. He kind of chuckles it off. And I, I, the first time I saw that, I thought, that's confidence. That's confidence. And what his wife then shared from the scriptures, we know that the end that awaits us, whether we, we wake or sleep, we will live with him. That's what she says. And the confidence, the boldness that that gives you in the face of trial, that's the path of life. So I wanted you to see that picture from that couple, and then we'll look at what Proverbs says to continue to unpack that. The path of life in Proverbs, from a few verses here, Proverbs 12, 28, in the path of righteousness in light is life, and in its pathway there is no death. And then 10.2 and 10.16, which we saw, they, they, they're contrasting verses. So we already read them once, but I'll read them again. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The wage of the righteous leads to life. The gain of the wicked is the gain of the wicked to sin. And so there's this contrast. There's a pathway that goes to death, but there's a pathway that goes to life. And, and number one, the first thing we learn from those three verses, 10 to, or 12, 28, 10, 2, and 10, 16, is that righteousness, righteousness is the path. Now, every one of you has heard sermons before that talk about righteousness. And you probably have some conception of the word, but let's just be honest and say that sometimes these really rich theological words just become words that get said in church a lot and we forget what they mean. Or maybe you've just heard it so much you never, you, you've kind of been embarrassed to ask, what does righteousness actually mean? I know, I kind of think it means something about being right or some, something about being perfect or pure. Well, the book of Proverbs actually gives us a really good picture of it. And it's one I already uh, alluded to earlier. Um, righteousness is, is rightness in one sense. It is moral purity in the New Testament gospel sense. But the illustration in the book of Proverbs is one of somebody in a market that is selling something by the weight, some grain or fruit or something, and you want a pound of grain. And a righteous pound of grain is an exact, perfect pound of grain. It is ex the, the scale is right, the scale is fair, the scale is just, the scale meets with the standard. A unrighteous pound of grain in the book of Proverbs is somebody that's monkeyed with their scale a little bit. Instead of 16 ounces, you get 15 ounces. You get 14 ounces. So he makes a little bit of money. He keeps a couple ounces of grain. Little by little, he makes a lot more that way off of the, the people in the community. And so righteousness is essentially then, in that picture, adhering to the standard. That's what righteousness is. And so the path of life is righteousness. That means the path of life adheres to the standard. And aren't we glad that we are not stuck and left with the theology of the path of death that says there's a way that seems right to you, follow it. Aren't we glad that we don't have to 
chart our own course and define our own morality and come up with our own standards and come up with our own process of how to find what's right and wrong in life. Aren't we glad? Isn't it easier? Isn't it better to have an exterior standard and say, this is what life looks like. This is what what the path to life looks like. This is what righteousness is. This is what moral purity is. And we know as we've said a number of times, the book of Proverbs is ultimately pointing to the wisdom of God, that, and the wisdom of God is found in the sayings of Proverbs, yes, but the wisdom of God is only fully revealed in the person of Jesus. And so the righteous standard is given in the old covenant law. This is what you should do, obey God's commands. But the righteous standard is only ever fully pictured in Jesus. See, the righteousness of the law that tells you do this and don't do this. It convicts you, it shows you where you're wrong, and it does nothing to redeem you. Because you step out of line once, and you're off of the path of life, and you're on the path of death. The beauty of new covenant wisdom, the beauty of new covenant righteousness, is that Jesus is here. And Jesus is the standard of righteousness, says you don't have to follow the law. You don't live according to the way of the law. You live according to the way of Jesus. I'm the righteous standard. Follow me, pursue me, seek to look more like me. Walk, live like me, Jesus said. But when you fall short, my righteousness redeems you and brings you back to the path of righteousness, the path of life. So what is righteousness? Jesus. We'll say more about that in a second. Number two on here, 1916, whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life. He who despises his ways will die. So if you keep the commandments of God, the way is life. You despise God's law and rules, it's death. 1427, number three, fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about emotions in the book of Proverbs. I think that's three, three weeks ago. You can look that up. And we talked about, are we supposed to be fearful? Should Christians be afraid of God? What does the fear of the Lord look like? And here's just the simple picture. The fear of the Lord is God at the center. The fear of the Lord is everything I do, I do in light of the awe and reverence I feel in response to this God whose life I want to center my life around. I want to center my life around who God is, his character, his standards, his teaching, and his revelation. The fear of the Lord is this term in the scriptures for this awareness of the presence of God and the awareness that we're sinners and we've got to do something different with our lives. And so we allow this awareness of God's grandeur and love to compel us to change. So the path of life is righteousness, it's obedience, it's keeping God's commands, and it's the fear of the Lord, and it's number four, the teaching of the wise, 13, 14. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Ultimately, that's the reality. Okay, but here's the problem that we're in. If you look at this path of death as I've laid it out, and the path of life as I've laid it out, um, most of us, I'm going to assume, myself, I'll just talk about me right now, I'm way better at living the path of death 
than the path of life. Because if the path of life is obeying all of God's commands, I haven't done very well at this. If the path of life is adhering to the righteous standard in every way, I haven't done very well at that either. If the path of life is always adhering to the wise teaching that is available to me, sometimes I kind of do my own thing and I go off the rails. But if the path of death is doing, you know, working for money and wealth for the wrong reasons, yeah, I've done that before. If the path of death is doing what seems right to man and not obeying God's commands, yeah, I've, I've done that before. And if the path of death is despising God's ways in any one area, I've done that before too. So where does that leave us? Does that leave us off of the perfect way of life and stuck in the path of death with no way to go? Without Jesus, it does. That's the truth. That the book of Proverbs is beautiful. It's full of wisdom. I love it, and I've spent three months trying to get you to love it too. But ultimately, without Jesus, this is empty. If the book of Proverbs only ever leaves us with this conclusion, choose this way, and if you mess up this way in any way, then you are by default on the path of death. So, sorry guys, you're on your way to death. If that's all the message of Proverbs is, it's really bad news. But if the book of Proverbs points to Jesus, we should see what he says. So turn with me, and we'll close this way. John 4. John 4, and we'll pick up in verse 11. Uh, or in verse 10. I can't help it. I love this woman. I love talking about her. I love talking about Jesus and his interactions with her. Um, and there's something about Proverbs 13, 14 that just mentally sends you to John 4. Because if you want the fountain of life, then we need to see what Jesus says about him being the way and him being the living water. You probably know the story. Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and they say, uh, let's not go through Samaria, let's go around Samaria. And Jesus was like, no, we're going to go right through Samaria. It's fine. We Jews don't interact with the Samaritans. We think they're half-breeds. We think they, they worship a false uh, god, a, a, a derivation of, of who the God of Israel is. We, are, we don't like Samaritans. They don't like us. But we're going to travel right through the heart of Samaria. And they come to this well, and the guys say, okay, we're going to go into town, and we're going to get some food. And this woman comes out in the heat of the day all by herself because the other women in town don't want to associate with her. So she's alone at the well, and in her alone time at the well, here comes this foreigner, this Jew, part of the people group that doesn't like her. They don't get along. And he violates two unwritten rules. Number one, a Jew speaks to a Gentile. And number two, a man speaks to a woman that's not in his family. And she's like, what's going on here? Who is this guy? And Jesus has the audacity to ask this woman for a drink of water. And we'll pick up from there. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. When do you get that living water? See, I didn't go back far enough to really capture her frustration here. She's like, 
this dude is crazy because he asked me for water. And I say it's weird that he asked me for water because he's a man and he's a Jew. And his response, when I say it's weird that you're asking me for water, his response is, actually, you should be asking me for water and I'll give you living water. He clearly doesn't know how this well works. He doesn't have a bucket. He, he has no idea what he's thinking. So at this moment in the conversation, the Samaritan woman is beside herself, can't figure out who this guy is she's talking to. And her assumption, which is the assumption that many people have in their confrontations with Jesus, this guy doesn't make sense. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I don't understand what he's talking about. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. He drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. True. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Man, read that in light of Proverbs 13, 14. Proverbs 13, 14 and John 4, 14, they just go together. The Proverbs 13, 14 leaves us at this end, the end of this long series in Proverbs, longing for some answer to the path of life. Because if we're honest with ourselves, none of us have perfectly kept God's commands. None of us have adhered to the standard. None of us get it right all the time. So we're all on the path of death without Jesus. How do we get there, Jesus? How does this woman who's had multiple husbands, and that comes out in the story here. How, do, how does she get there? And the problem with this Samaritan woman is, and we can think about this a little bit critically in light of the, the first century, we, we automatically read this and we think she's sexually immoral. She's a problem. But a first century woman that's had multiple husbands is probably where she is because she's been thrown away by multiple husbands. So we, we tend to read this as if it's something that she has done that's evil. When in part, maybe there's, there's sin that she has committed, certainly, Jesus confronting her. But there's also this point where she is a, a victim in this whole thing, too. That she has been left behind. And she has lived sexual immorality, sure. But she has also had sin done to her. And the woman said to him, in response, Sir, give me this water, that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. And then that, this is when he confronts her with having multiple husbands and living with a man who's not her husband. And her response is, okay, you're a prophet, so this is her question. Our fathers, verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We Worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said, I, who speak to you, I'm he. And so, brothers and sisters of Fellowship Bible Church of Dalton, Georgia, here's where Proverbs leaves us. Thirsty. We need the fountain of living water. And we're confronted now 
is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, who has said, I have come to pick you off of the path of death because you chose wrong, and you chose wrong repeatedly, and you and your sinfulness have been walking towards death. But Jesus says, I'm here to pick you up and to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the path of death to the path of life. But once you're here, I want you to follow me in my standard. I want you to obey me. And once you're here, you can trail off and start living like the world again sometimes, but you need to come back. It's still possible to sin while being on the path of life. But if you're following Jesus' righteous standard, if you're pursuing him, he's going to bring you back. So brothers and sisters, this is the gospel for today. This is the gospel for every day. Today is the day of salvation when Jesus, the Son of God, says the hour is coming and will soon be here when those who worship will worship in, in spirit and truth. And it doesn't matter if you're in a mountain in Samaria or if you're on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem or you're, you're on Doug Gap Road in Dalton, Georgia. Those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. So those who have been on the path of life are now called to the, who have been on the path of death are called to the path of life. And if you have any question about which path you're on this morning, then the altar is for you today to choose the path of life, not because you know the way to, to claw, claw your way through the rough woods to get from the path of death to the path of life, but because Jesus is standing there offering to transfer you from one path to the other. And if you know Jesus and you just strayed from the path of life, he's calling you back. He's welcoming you back because there will come a day soon and I'll ask the band to join me. There's a day coming soon when you will one day receive that diagnosis. You'll one day be in that accident and you'll one day breathe your last breath in this life. And the promise of Jesus is that those who are in him their last breath in this life is their first breath in eternity. And for those that deny Jesus, that continue to despise his ways up until the end, the end is separation from God, condemnation, fire, torment, and pain. But Jesus gives us confidence. That's the message that I wanted you to see on the face of Ken today. Jesus gives us confidence and think about why he gave Ken confidence. It was scripture, past scriptures memorized gave Ken confidence. It was the presence of God. It was the prayers of the saints, even this little church in Dalton, Georgia that was praying for him for seven years. And it was God's past faithfulness. That's what gave Ken confidence. And so this morning, let's close that way. Let's remember the promises of scripture that we who are in Christ remain in Christ for eternity. And let's claim the promises of his presence as the spirit dwells in us and does not leave us. Let's live in prayer for those that are lost and those that are far off.